Hello and welcome to Media Geek. This is our weekly look at the world of grassroots and independent media as well as a critical examination of our media environment. My name is Paul Sunell, and I'm your host. On today's program, a pretty nice victory for Low Power FM in the House of Representatives and we hit our third to last show with a look back at one station that went from pirate to licensed low power. You do want to stay tuned. Well, Low Power FM saw a victory that activists, community radio enthusiasts, and Low Power FM advocates have been waiting for for nigh on nine years. On December 16th at 7.06 p.m. in the evening, the House of Representatives, with almost no drama, Passed House Resolution 1147, the Local Community Radio Act of nineteen of, of 2009, by a voice vote. By voice vote means that yays and nays, not even any need to, uh, to have a lot of discussion. No roll call vote. It means all of a sudden now, something that had been controversial for nine years... Smooth sailing. Now that's halfway to the restoration of Low Power FM. Now if you've been listening to the Media Geek Radio Show this year, or any time really in the last seven years, you've heard about Low Power FM. These are non-commercial, low-powered stations, community stations, that the FCC began licensing this decade. They're intended to be inexpensive to run, easy to get on air, to serve local communities with non-commercial programming that is specifically local in origination. The rules of ownership and the rules for content require that the content be, much of it, locally oriented, locally originated, and that the stations be locally owned. But when... The FCC created the service back in 2000. One other thing they did is they they set upon rules which would allow you to put the stations closer together on a dial, closer to full power stations than other full power stations could be because blaring very low power signals, 10 to 100 watts, they, they wouldn't cause interference. However, the National Association of Broadcasters, representing the commercial radio industry, begged to differ, lobbied Congress hard, and then finally at the end of the year, on December 18th, 2000, got a provision limiting low-power FM stations to obeying the space and requirements of full-power stations into an omnibus budget bill signed into law by President Clinton after a series of backroom horse trading. They also required the FCC to go and have an independent study done on the real interference threat that low-power FM posed. When that report came back, the MITRE report, it said it didn't pose an interference threat and affect the commercial radio industry. The National Association of Broadcasters were lying to Congress. Since then, nearly every year, a bill has been floated in Congress to to reverse to reverse the cutting off of the knees of low power FM. And 2009, with a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president and healthcare and other things looming larger on the agenda, is the first time. Such a bill has made it to the House floor, and clearly then the first time it has passed. Now we're looking to the Senate to see if and when the full Senate will take up 
their companion to the House's Local Community Radio Act of 2009 and take action, sign it. If they do, it's likely that President Obama will sign it. And what can happen then is that arguably tens to hundreds more low-power FM stations can hit the dial, especially in crowded radio dials like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, and other large metropolitan areas. Already, organizations in many of these cities have started organizing to try and get together to be ready to have a full community station, a low-power community station on the air when finally the opportunity exists. So, we're half the way there, not there yet. But uh, there's more hope than ever before that we may see the full potential of low-power FM hit the United States airwaves. And I'm glad glad that I can report on that on one of the very last Media Geek radio shows. Now, one of the things that propelled the FCC to create low-power FM in the first place was a grassroots civil disobedience movement that really hit its stride in the 1990s called Micropower Radio, Unlicensed Radio, by some called Pirate Radio. Uh, one of the uh, chief progenitors of this is Stephen Dunifer, who started a station called Free Radio Berkeley in Berkeley, California, and started up a little shop designing and creating kits for people to build their own low-power FM transmitters. In the 1990s, you had this great convergence of both technology, the ability to create transmitters inexpensively and easily, combined with a political reason for doing so. It was in reaction to the consolidation on the uh, FM dial and the AM dial brought about by the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which removed the national ownership caps on radio stations and greatly loosened the local and market caps on radio station ownership, creating the likes of the 1200 station behemoth Clear Channel, Cumulus, and others, making it much more difficult to get non-commercial, community-oriented stations onto the dial. Now, back all the way up until the late 1970s, actually, the FCC had been licensing inexpensive 10-watt low-power FM stations and then ceased doing so in 1978, strangely enough, at the uh, behest of the likes of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and National Public Radio, which were concerned that these little tiny stations, often run by schools, high schools or colleges or community groups were diluting the funding base for public radio and community radio. But also, by uh, taking away this opportunity, remove the opportunity for there to be smaller voices, to be community-based, neighborhood-based, non-commercial voices on the air. Well, in the 1990s, people all around the country said, well, if you're not going to license these stations... If we can't apply for a 10-watt license, well, heck, it's getting pretty easy for us to put our own 10-watt station on the air, run it with uh, technical specifications that uh, are in the up and up, keep it from being an interference source, keep it from uh, 
being on top of someone else's signal on the dial and run it like a community station. This happened uh, throughout the country and is still happening in some places. Stations like Freak Radio Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz, California still broadcast this day. Stations come and go. Well, one station that went on the air in the early 2000s was Free Radio Brattleboro in Brattleboro, Vermont. And this is a station that went on the air with the support of its community. It was a community that wanted to have a low-power, non-commercial station. But at the time that they started it, they couldn't. Especially they couldn't have a station broadcasting it only 10 watts. So I want to look back at the story of Brattleboro, Free Radio, Free Radio, Brattleboro, which is a station that would go on to actually become a licensed low-power FM community radio station. So we're going to go back to an interview that first aired on Media Geek, May 27th, 2007, with Larry Block, a volunteer at what is now Brattleboro Community Radio, who tells us the story of how Free Radio Brattleboro got started. Back in 1997, um, I don't remember where the idea sprang out of, but uh, notice was given to the community that there would be folks gathering at our local teen center, as it was then called, to discuss the idea of a community radio station. And all would be, everyone was invited to come and, and participate in these initial discussions. And indeed, that's what I did, and uh, maybe three dozen or so people uh, over a period of a few months met informally at first just to sort of discuss the idea, and then it became more formalized, and people went about doing some of the advance work to research, well, what it is uh, that you need to do as a community to create a community radio station. What is a community radio station? How do you engineer it? How do you get uh, licensed to do it? Uh, How do we, as a group of people, move forward to make decisions? And all of those conversations occurred uh, among a very motley group of of folks from uh, younger teenagers all the way up to elderly folks and everyone in between. Anyway, uh, during our research period, uh, we discovered the uh, sort of brief history of the Federal Communications Commission, the Telecommunications Acts, and uh, came to the understanding that there were no licenses available for low-powered FM broadcasters uh, at that time. And indeed, the uh, FCC had uh, abandoned that process, uh, that licensing category, back in the late 1970s. And when we were faced with the reality that getting a license was not possible for a low-power FM community station, uh, we came to the consensus uh, agreement that we would forge ahead nonetheless, believing that it was a reasonable right for a community to have a low-power FM station and that the mandate of the Telecommunications Acts indeed required the FC to, FCC to, to make that type of uh, uh, radio broadcast available. In July of 1998, Radio Free Brattleboro uh, went on the air for the first time. And we broadcast out of the teen center in downtown Brattleboro. Uh, as a, that was our first studio. And indeed, I think uh, early on, we had uh, a nine-year-old and at broadcasting uh, as, a, as a program host and uh, you know school groups, 
uh, municipal leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we went undetected, I guess would be the right word, by the FCC for several years. Uh, no one bothered us, and we didn't feel like we were bothering anybody. In order to be uh, reasonably regulated, uh, we turned to ourselves and our community uh, for guidance on, on, on regulations, if you will, since we weren't licensed by the FCC. And we adopted what we uh, uh, inferred were community standards for our broadcasting guidance. Um, it was, but I think five years hence, in 2003, apparently uh, reached the radar screen of the FCC for the first time. And I say apparently because we don't really know, you know, what goes on at that agency particularly. But we uh, received uh, a uh, visit. I think they came uh, to our door uh, and demanded to see our license. Uh, and we, of course, uh, didn't have an FCC license. And in a conversation that I had with the, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know what their role was, the administrative office personnel from the FCC, a couple of them came. And I had a conversation with them. And we discussed the, you know, the history of the FCC and the history of the Telecommunications Act and the fact that didn't make any sense that there was no licensing available. Uh, we told uh, the uh, man from the FCC that we were authorized to broadcast by our community in, in lieu of the opportunity to have uh, a low-power 10-watt uh, LPFM license. So also wasn't that there was no LPFM 10-watt license at the time, but there but there had been back in the in the 70s. He was not really impressed by that idea, and uh, we received a, a letter that. Uh, instructed us to cease broadcasting or face dire consequences. Well, we met shortly thereafter. Of course, we had an emergency meeting of the entire uh, staff, and we chose to voluntarily leave the air for a little while so that we could document properly the authorization from the community that we knew that we had, but that we actually had no real documentation at that time to demonstrate to the FCC. And the subsequent uh, documentation campaign took uh, a few months, uh, and it was actually in three parts, but the initial uh, outreach to the community was in the form of a petition. The petition was worded to ask the uh, signer uh, to authorize Radio Free Brattleboro to broadcast until such a time as the FCC got around to offering a license to another community uh, entity that was prepared to continue the mission of independent, non-commercial, all-access community radio in Brattleboro. And that petition was signed by about 3,000 individuals. Uh, and when we finished that campaign in the summer, at the end of the summer, uh, we chose to go back on the air. So uh, expecting the FCC to return, which they did shortly thereafter, and once again demanded in a letter to see our license. As a matter of fact, the letter stated uh, that it required us to produce our FCC license or other authorization to broadcast. Interestingly enough that the letter actually said it that way. And, uh, it seemed to us logical that the other authorization to broadcast is what it is we were going to be able to give to the FCC. And indeed, when they returned to our studios, we offered them a copy of those 3,000 petitions uh, 3,000 petition signatures, which they declined and uh, told us that they would be, you know, 
pursuing this matter legally, uh, and we would be hearing from them again. And that's Larry Block, volunteer, with Brattleboro Community Radio. That's an interview that first aired on the Media Geek Radio Show on June 8th, 2007. And he was telling the early history of the station, which was in a different form, the unlicensed station, Radio Free Brattleboro, which began in 1997 before the FCC created a low-power FM service and before it would license any sort of community-based low-power station. And this is Media Geek, your weekly look at the world of grassroots and independent media, as well as a critical examination of our media environment. My name is Paul Riesenel. I'm your host, Eric Yarnell, tonight is producing. Thanks to Eric for sitting in here and keeping things running. And we're listening to this history of Radio Free Brattleboro and Brattleboro Community Radio because it is one of those stations, one of the few stations that started out as unlicensed as Pirate and would eventually, in spirit at least, go on to become a licensed community radio. As a pirate station, it was part of a movement, the micropower radio movement, that throughout the 90s put lots of pressure on the FCC to find a way to get low-power community voices onto the air because, well, they were going to do it anyway. So next up, we're going to hear a piece, an interview that aired January 23rd, 2004 on the Media Geek Radio Show. We're going to hear from Sarah Longsmith, who is a volunteer with Radio Free Brattleboro, who's going to pick up the story where Larry left off. So Radio Free Brattleboro recently received a letter from the U.S. Attorney General's office in Vermont. That's right. And what did this letter say? Um, Basically, this letter warned us that um, the FCC has asked the Attorney General's office in Vermont to assist them in shutting down our station. And the letter asked us to voluntarily shut down. To in, so that it, the voluntary shutdown before they come with some sort of police force, I, I suspect, right? Right. So it's um, basically our assessment of it was that they knew that uh, we have generated a lot of publicity lately, and they we feel that they wanted a quiet shutdown with not very much action, not a police force coming in or U.S. Marshals coming in, um, in front of teenagers or grandfatherly types to shut our station down. And instead, um, because Vermont is a small state and it's easy to talk to one another, they decided to contact our lawyer and ask him if there's any way we would voluntarily shut down. So that he contacted your lawyer directly? Right, that's right. Wow, because this is very different than tactics than we saw, let's say, in San Francisco last year, where you know a station, unlicensed community station, had a lot of community support, but nonetheless, you know, the FCC came with federal marshals in tow and and shut them down forcibly. And in Vermont, instead, you know, they're coming in and they're going rather lightly. I mean, what are they afraid of there in Brattleboro? Well, um, as your listeners might remember, we've really been quite transparent. And our, we feel that uh, because our station is so well integrated into the community, um, it's, it would target a lot more heartstrings um, in terms of people being really upset 
uh, normal mainstream people being quite upset if we were shut down. Um, and so I think that they decided that uh, they didn't want uh, there to be a lot of negative publicity about this, and they wanted to avoid that. So um, that's what they decided to do. And maybe even because our publicity has been so positive, uh, he wanted to see if uh, basically we could negotiate something rather than it have to be a big, relatively expensive police operation. They haven't given us a time frame. In fact, uh, we waited a couple of days to respond to their letter um, because we had to come to a consensus about how we would like to respond to it. And we sent the letter uh, over a week ago, and we have yet to hear back from the U.S. Attorney General's office. So they don't seem to be in a big rush to expedite the FCC's request. And, and, and what is the essence of the letter you sent back to the Attorney General's office? Uh, well, it's pretty complicated, but uh, the essence of the letter basically uh, highlights our legal argument that we're making as a station. Um, the first point is that there, as of now, there is no licensing procedure for a 10-watt station, and we operate at 10 watts. Mm -hmm. And so we feel that until that process is put into place by the FCC, we have to look for authority elsewhere to be able to broadcast because the FCC, as you know, doesn't regulate it. Uh, so that was a point that we made. Um, our lawyer also makes a strong point about our recent efforts uh, since the first FCC visit to our station last June, uh, June of last year, that uh, we have gone out and gathered a really high number of petition signatures. Um, and what is that number? <laughs> um, Just about. We're, we're up to about 3,500 petition signatures, which for our small town of 1,200 is, is quite significant. So this okay, is people. 12, our small town of 12,000. 12,000. Yeah. So this is people who live in and around the Brattleboro area. Wow, that's a lot of support. And so yeah, it's a lot of support. And uh, the select board of Brattleboro, it's uh, an equivalent to a city council, passed a resolution supporting our station and asking the FCC to work with us. And so we've sort of been gathering these uh, demonstrations of support and authority to broadcast. Uh, we have one more coming up uh, on town meeting day. In Vermont, we have town meeting day, which is uh, sort of like a local elections, mm -hmm. and we're uh, going to be on the town ballot as, a, as an initiative to ask the, our community to give us authority to broadcast in the slot, uh, the frequency slot at 107.9 FM that's reserved for a low-power FM station um, until the FCC gives either us a license or another community-oriented uh, organization uh, a license to broadcast from that slot. So we're very non-violently asserting ourselves and our right to be there as a community radio station until another station is licensed or until we're licensed. And that is Sarah Longsmith. She was a volunteer with Radio Free Brattleboro, the unlicensed precursor to Brattleboro Community Radio, telling us about a uh, not very nice letter they received 
back then, in January of 2004, from the Vermont state's attorney. And that interview originally aired on January 23rd of 2004 on the Media Geek radio show. And uh, this is Media Geek, and we're taking a look back at a station that went from unlicensed micropower pirate, if you will, to being a true licensed low-power community station. In fact, the station is pretty much the same on on either side of the equation. The only difference is, well, they got a license. And after getting a license, didn't have to worry about being shut down again. In March, uh, there were lawsuits filed, I guess, if that's the right term. Actually, we filed first, anticipating that the U.S. attorney would file an action against Radio Free Brattleboro. In essence, what the government did on behalf of the FCC was ask the federal court to order Radio Free Brattleboro to cease and desist broadcasting. And indeed, our day in court came later that spring, where Judge Murtha uh, heard uh, a limited amount of testimony. It was not permitted to discuss the harm that we may or may not have caused to the community by a broadcasting without a license, nor was it permitted to discuss the harm that would be caused to the community should this community station no longer be able to broadcast. That was not permitted in the court. All that was permitted was a discussion as to whether or not we had authorization to broadcast. We had sought a local authority to uphold the law in the vacuum created by the FCC's failure to do so. And that was our legal argument. We didn't feel we were breaking the law. Indeed, we felt we were upholding the law. And the judge took that into consideration. He took the case and uh, studied it and researched it for the better part of the next 10 or 12 months, uh, during which time we were broadcasting on the air. And Along comes early 2005, without warning, the impatient U.S. attorney uh, went to another judge and magistrate in Burlington, Vermont, seeking not a cease and desist order, but seeking an order to allow the U.S. attorney and the marshals to seize the equipment of Radio Free Brattleboro. The U.S. Marshals came early, about 5.30 in the morning, uh, with the assistance of a uh, locksmith, I believe, and broke into our studios and seized all of our equipment, effectively taking Radio Free Brattleboro off of the air. Well, concurrent with this all is that back in the year 2000, just to fill in here, uh, the FCC half-heartedly, I believe, and I think that we can look back and see that it's still a pretty half-hearted effort, uh, finally uh, sort of gave in to what I think was a, a combination of pressures, including the pressures from nonviolent, you know, uh, civil disobedient acts by community broadcasters, and began administratively to allow, perm, uh, allow applications for 100-watt classifications of licenses. And, uh, and Radio Free Brattleboro was aware of that opportunity to apply back in 2000 for such a classification of a license, and we met and considered whether or not we would do that. The rules, though, being very, very weird, 
would have required Radio Free Brattleboro to stop broadcasting if we wanted to apply for such a license with no certainty that we would ever get such a license and no timetable for having any idea of when a license like that might be uh, forthcoming. However, there was another non-for-profit organization in town, Vermont Earthworks, that had the foresight to apply for such a license uh, because they believed that Radio Free Brattleboro's standing in the community was valuable, but fragile, that we perhaps would not be able to continue for one reason or another. So they put in such an application for a license. And indeed, in the same spring when the U.S. attorney uh, and the marshals seized our equipment, the FCC announced the award of a construction permit to Vermont Earthworks. Well, this had the effect of causing Radio Free Brattleboro to, after much consideration and discussions with attorneys, to not continue our legal argument. Our goal had been achieved in the sense that promised our community that if the FCC licensed another entity prepared to bring non-commercial, all-access community broadcasting to Brattleboro, that we would stand down. And indeed, that's what we did. Uh, Brattleboro Community Radio, WVW, was born. And uh, again, with the same model as Radio Free Brattleboro, and uh, is now broadcasting at 100 watts, uh, and has been since September of 2006, with a roster of about 85 program hosts and 70 plus different shows and it's just a it's just a wonderful thing the community radio continues in Brattleboro and uh and that was Larry Block a volunteer with Brattleboro Community Radio and that is from June 7th sorry June 8th 2007 edition of Media Geek and that brings to a close Another edition of Media Geek. Only two more left. Don't miss them. Collect them all. I will be back one more week with more news and views on our media environment as we take a look back at some of my favorite segments in the last seven years of Media Geek. In the meantime, check out Media Geek online, mediageek.net, the radio shows at radio.mediageek.net, and the Twitter feed, of course, twitter.com slash Media Geek. I want to say thank you to some more stations that have carried the Media Geek Radio Show, like WRFA in Jamestown, New York, WRFU, Radio Free Urbana in Urbana, Illinois, WSLR in Sarasota, Florida, and WTND in Macomb, Illinois, and of course, the great Brattleboro Community Radio, WVEW in Brattleboro, Vermont. Thanks for tuning in.